but the thing I love about it is that every day I got to see things that no human has ever seen before. And I got to know things that no human has ever known before because I dug a hole in the ground with stuff I bought at the hardware store. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk about dinosaurs with paleontologist Kenneth Lacovara, and I have to admit that this discussion literally made me wish I'd become a paleontologist. Paleontology was probably my original dream job around age seven, and to better appreciate this desire, I asked my parents about a certain summer trip we took to Colorado when I was a kid, and a ranger at the Garden of the Gods asked a group of tourists to identify a certain smooth, round rock. He asked, you know, That's several people. He asked, yeah, a he asked a question. What, what is it? Yeah, and it, with your hand. <laughs> right, but before that, there were some adults, you know, that were trying to make some guesses, and they were wrong. And you had your hand up. Yeah, it didn't speak out. You, you, you weren't, you weren't waving it or anything. No, but you didn't put it down either. You no, know? but he finally kind of looked at you, kind of like, "Was this kid?" No. <laughs> so you you answered the question correctly. You said it was a gastrolith, uh-huh. uh, which came from a, a dinosaur. And then you went on to the function of the gastrolith, which where is, it came from, which is to grind food, mm-hmm. very much like the gizzard in a, in a chicken. Our guide was impressed because he didn't want to answer your hand because he thought you had some <laughs> ridiculous answer, but in fact, it was the only correct one that was given. <laughs> but did you know I was writing a book about dinosaurs? Oh, yeah, we knew. Yeah, we you, knew you were you writing a book. You were writing we, a and book. we tried to provide you information so that you could make the make it the book as correct as possible. And we would take you to the library and you liked to check out books about dinosaurs and we read lots of dinosaur books to you. And you were always a good artist ever since you were really little. And uh, so you would draw pictures of them. I would hang them on the refrigerator and you would print their names across the bottom. And then if I forgot what the name was, you would remind me. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. The first book I ever wrote, decades before Vagabonding came out, was a 76-page hand-illustrated guide to dinosaurs, which is my first real obsession in life. I've actually posted a link to a PDF copy of that old book in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate, should you want to check it out. Part of today's interview with Kenneth Lacovara involves fact-checking the assertions I made in my old dinosaur book. It should come as no surprise that I got a lot of my facts wrong, but I did get a lot of facts right, and what we know about dinosaurs has changed since I was seven years old. Kenneth Lacovara is the author of a fantastic book called Why Dinosaurs Matter, which is a spinoff of his TED Talk about dinosaurs, which has been watched more than two million times online. He has a way of talking about dinosaurs in an engaging and infectious way, and in the course of our conversation, we talk about the deep time history of Earth and how paleontology can better help us understand the conception of time. We talk about why dinosaurs were incredibly successful creatures and how they still exist in the form of birds. We talk about how T-Rex probably had feathers and why T-Rex's arms were so small. Hint, it's not a matter of weakness. We talk about the science of paleontology and how it can give us a true appreciation for the miracle of our own existence. We talk about what life as a paleontologist looks like and how Ken sometimes discovers dinosaurs by accident on vacation, as happened not long ago in Utah. This is the kind of interview that would have thrilled my seven-year-old self, and I'll admit it thrilled the seven-year-old part of me that still holds dinosaurs as a source of fascination. Now, if by chance you wanted to plan an around-the-world trip taking in the great paleontology sites of the world, say Argentine Patagonia and Germany's Lowenstein Formation and the Gobi Desert of Central Asia, you can do so with the help of my sponsor, Airtrex, which is a great way to save money on round-the-world and multi-stop flight itineraries. Check out their flight planning tools at airtrex.com and plug in your dream trip to see what I'm talking about. For now, here's Kenneth Lacovara and I talking about why dinosaurs matter and why people like me tend to fall in love with dinosaurs at an early age. Let's listen in. 
I really enjoyed reading your book, Why Dinosaurs Matter. It has some, some great facts and stories that I want to talk about in a second. But actually, my interest in dinosaurs goes back to my own book that I wrote in 1978 when I was seven years old. It was called Dinosaurs. It was 76 pages. It was illustrated by hand. It had a pronunciation guide in the back. And at a certain point, I want you to check my facts, um, because in, in a sense, that was my peak of knowledge about dinosaurs. And I suspect things have, <laughs> sure. ch have changed a little bit. Um, but before we get into the specifics of your experience with dinosaurs, I'm just curious to know, why do kids love dinosaurs so much? Why, why was I compelled at age seven to write a 76-page book about dinosaurs? Well, you know, I have some, I guess, uh, amateur psychology theories about that. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not a psychologist by training. But uh, you often hear paleontologists say that, you know, it's because they're, they're really like monsters, but they were real, but they can't hurt you because they lived way back when. Huh. I'm not so sure that's it. Because the thing that almost every single parent says to me is my daughter, my son, they know the names of all these dinosaurs. I don't know how they know all those names. I don't know how they memorize all that stuff. And I think for the kid, it really becomes their first experience with authority. And I think that feels good, right? You know something all of a sudden that your parents don't know, that your teachers don't know, that your friends don't know. And being an authority on something is a, is a, a pleasant experience for, for people. And so I think they, they really like that. And it's, distinguishes them and they feel good about themselves and so it becomes a very positive experience for them. I'm curious about why it's dinosaurs specifically and you must talk to a lot of kids with the work that you do but I mean there's so many things that one could obsess about you know sports or insects or Roman emperors or cars from the 1940s why do you reckon it's specifically dinosaurs that captures this very specialized knowledge that very young kids like to obsess about? Well, I think it's easy to see for kids and for grown-ups that dinosaurs are just cool, right? They're, they're big, they're ferocious, they're almost unimaginable, except that they were real. So we, we actually don't need our imagination. We can see their bones and we can uncover their history in the rocks. And so it almost seems like they're from another world, but they're not. They're from our world. And it's really a past world that was the Earth. And I just think that's spellbinding for kids and for grown-ups. And I think that's, you know, the, the Jurassic Park franchise and all the other movies and, and books that have had dinosaurs. I think it all plays off that same uh, sense of wonder. And, you know, one of the things that, that I like to think about the way it impacts people is I think that it gives people a sense of small and awe. right? We feel very tiny next to hmm. these giant dinosaurs and geology does that too. When you start to think about the vastness of the earth and our tiny little place in time. Um, and then we feel awe. we feel all that these creatures could have evolved of their own auspices and that they really existed and that we live on such an amazing planet that could produce things like dinosaurs and then eventually us. Yeah, you know, I remember having very specific, like, imaginative relationships with different kinds of dinosaurs. Just just off the top of your head, can you guess what my favorite kind of dinosaur was? Well, um, the odds on would be T-Rex, right? Like, that is the uncontested, most popular dinosaur of all time. Um, so most people would say T-Rex, but uh, I don't know. Let's go with... Um, Maybe Stegosaurus. Ooh, that's good. Stegosaurus was probably number three. Triceratops was number one, and Ankylosaurus ah. was number two. Um, there you go. And so you can probably see a pattern there. You're into plant eaters. <laughs> plant, eat plant eaters who were also kind of tough. And to my listeners who might not know their dinosaurs, the Triceratops had like a shield and three horns. The Ankylosaurus had this tail with a club on it and a, and a back covered mm -hmm. with scales and armor. And then the Stegosaurus had these little spikes in his tail. 
Um, so I, I think in, in your book, you mentioned that there's s- some sort of duckbill dinosaurs that just aren't as, as popular and charismatic. And I think that I liked the plant eaters because they seemed nicer than meat eaters, right? But they were also <laughs> sort of tough. They could defend themselves. Yeah, I'm not so sure about nicer, though. Um, as I always caution people, herbivores are surly and can be very, very dangerous. So the the most dangerous large animal in Africa is not the lion or the cheetah, it's the hippo. And hippos don't want to eat you, they're, they eat plants. They just want to kill you because they're, they're territorial and they're very, very aggressive. And if you're anywhere near a hippo, you are in grave danger. The same with rhinos uh, in Yellowstone. The bison have killed and injured far more people than the grizzly bears ever have. So these giant herbivorous dinosaurs, uh, things like a triceratops or a stegosaurus that was about as big as a Winnebago or the giant plant eaters like a brontosaurus, uh, you don't want to be anywhere near those creatures. They would have been incredibly dangerous. Yeah, you know, reading your book helped me help that make sense to me. Yeah, like I, I know that stat about hippos being the most dangerous statistically animal in Africa, oftentimes, and and so that drove home. And, and again, at, at a certain point in the interview, I want you to fact check my 1978 book about dinosaurs because I think I have a, <laughs> a lot of assumptions that maybe not, have not held been held up by science. But um, I'm curious, uh, like, what sorts of animal uh, dinosaurs do kids? always want to talk about, and, and two, you mentioned uh, like Jurassic Park, what kinds of dinosaurs end up being cinematic dinosaurs? Why and what do movies get wrong about dinosaurs? Well, in Jurassic Park, they, um, you know, it's usually uh, some kind of predator that is the star, and they featured mostly uh, T-Rex and Velociraptor, and they get Velociraptor very, very wrong. Uh, and then they have a smattering of herbivores. They're never really the star of the scene, but the herbivores are just kind of in the background. So they might have a, a Diplodocus back there or a Stegosaurus or, or something like that, some Gallimimus uh, running in a herd. Um, but it's the predators that they always feature. And if you ask an audience what their favorite dinosaur is, 80% of the people are going to say T-Rex. If you ask people what the most famous dinosaur is, nearly 100% of the people are going to say T-Rex. Um, and I think that's for a couple of reasons. One is that T-Rex was one of the earliest known dinosaurs, um, discovered in 1903 and published in 1905, I believe. And um, so it kind of came into the public consciousness early, as did the other really famous ones, like like uh, Stegosaurus and Brontosaurus and Allosaurus um, and um, Triceratops. And so those, those early described dinosaurs kind of got the jump in pop culture on the other ones. But T-Rex, I think, is, is actually deserving of its extra measure of fame. Um, it's the largest land-living predator of all time. Uh, mm-hmm. It has probably the most powerful bite for a land animal that has ever existed. And a T-Rex in a landscape um, was the absolute king of that domain. Uh, It could eat everything in the landscape that was made of meat. And the only thing that could eat a T-Rex is another T-Rex. And there is actually evidence of um, either cannibalism or or scavenging of one T-Rex to another. So there. They really do deserve that name. It just so happens that they were one of the early described dinosaurs and became extremely popular a very long time ago. Well, you bring up a very specific historical slander against the T-Rex, which is that there's something sort of pathetic about T-Rex arms. But you actually explain why T-Rex arms are small. So for my listeners, could you explain what exact evolutionary or functional purpose uh, the small arms serve? Sure. Well, a T-Rex is about the size of a bus. They're about 45 feet long. So giant, giant animals. Um, But their arms are about the size of your arms. And they're down to just two little witchy fingers uh, at the end. So they do have kind of pathetic little arms. Um, They couldn't catch prey with those arms. If they had something between those arms, they couldn't see it. It would be way under their their chin. Um, And 
so it seems as though that might be uh, a disadvantage, but um, you always have to weigh the positives and benefits of things in evolution. And the, the hallmark of T-Rex is that it has that amazingly powerful bite. The muscles that are necessary to support a powerful bite like that, well, you need a really big skull. And if you have a really big skull, you need really, really strong neck muscles to hold up that skull. And the muscles that attach the neck to the body, they kind of compete for muscle attachment space with the muscles of the arms. They all attach around the shoulder girdle. So it's a trade-off and you can, it's, it's a choice then. If you want to have a really strong bite and a really, really big skull, you can't have super giant arms because there's just not enough muscle attachment space for both a very powerful neck and a very powerful set of arms. So if the arms of T-Rex weren't conferring a selection advantage in evolution, if they weren't really getting their money's worth for growing arms and the danger of having a limb that could be injured or infected, then those arms start to uh, diminish over evolutionary time. And if the arms start to diminish, now there's more muscle attachment area for the neck muscles. So now the neck can grow larger, meaning that the jaw muscles, the skull can grow larger and its bite can increase. So that really, really ferocious bite of the T-Rex is because it has those tiny little arms. So that's the trade-off. And and do the arms serve any purpose beyond like scratching his own armpits? I mean, is is uh, were they just sort of a an accidental victim of this process of making his neck stronger, or did they help him somehow? Yeah, well, instead of purpose, I would actually say function, right? Because purpose implies a a, a meaning or engineering. Uh, but we do talk in evolutionary terms about the function of uh, organs, mm-hmm. and it it doesn't seem like like they had uh, much of a function or not, not a known function. And so it might be the case that if T-Rex were able to survive another, uh, you know, 10 million years or so, maybe those arms would go away altogether. Um, but T-Rex was cut short in its lifespan as a species because it happened to be one of those dinosaurs that just happened to be alive at the moment when the asteroid hit 66 million years ago. So the Earth didn't get the the full uh, lifespan of the species Tyrannosaurus rex that was cut short. Yeah, well, I want to talk about that asteroid a little bit later because my book in 1978 had four theories about the extinction of the dinosaurs, none of which had to do with asteroids. I'll get to that in a second. But while, uh, <laughs> while we're talking about slanders, one slander that you bring up is the idea that dinosaurs are sort of a metaphor for obsolescence, that they're sort of like the VHS tape of animals or of, 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 of creatures, or maybe the DeLorean. They're sort of fancy and they look good, but at the end of the day, they weren't very functional. And you, you push back against that, pointing out that you know, they're around for 165 million years, which it feels like is a little bit longer than humans. Uh, and, <laughs> just a little. Yeah. So um, what's the argument, just for people who might not think about dinosaurs that much, um, how would you describe them as actually this very healthy and adaptive and remarkable species? Well, your premise is correct. If, if you look at all of the, the major English dictionaries and you look up dinosaur in those dictionaries, there's going to be number one is going to be the biological definition of, of a dinosaur. Number two is always some metaphor for failure or obsolescence, one who is no longer adapted to current conditions and cannot compete, that sort of thing. And so it's become a, an accepted euphemism for failure and obsolescence. And, but really the failure, I think, was not the failure of the dinosaurs. The failure was our failure to understand the terms of their demise. Uh, humans have only been reading the rock record for about 200 years. And when we first started really paying attention to geology, uh, we had to develop the vocabulary to read the rocks. And that's, that's not so easy. So first we could, you know, kind of like a child learning to read, like we could understand a few letters, maybe sound out a few words, but we couldn't really get the plot of the story. And what we could see is that there were these amazing looking things that we named dinosaurs and they were around for a long time. We, we now know that's about 165 million years. We could see they were here 
And we could see that they just kind of poofed, vanished. And nobody had any idea why. And in that void of information, um, we began to develop all these kind of crackpot theories about the demise of the dinosaurs. And they all kind of hinged on the inability of the dinosaurs to compete and their, their failure of their own accord. In fact, the most prevalent idea of what happened to the dinosaurs in the early and mid part of the uh, 20th century was this idea of species senility. A species would evolve, they would thrive for a while, and then it would just kind of mysteriously run down and they'd no longer be able to compete and they would just kind of go away. So it was thought that the dinosaurs were, were these failures in the ecosystem. Now we know that's not true. We know that dinosaurs dominated terrestrial ecosystems for the better part of uh, 165 million years. They were cosmopolitan, meaning they were on every continent. Um, they dominated their ecosystems and their biodiversity was expanding at the time of their demise. And they didn't falter because of their own incompetence. They were murdered. <laughs> and, hmm. and so that shouldn't sully their reputation. And, and in the book, I point out that, you know, no one thinks poorly of Albert Einstein because eventually he ceased to be, right? <laughs> That's what us organisms do. We live for a while. Uh, reversing the entropy that's all around us. And eventually we succumb to it and we perish uh, just like Einstein did. And just like Marie Curie did and Charles Darwin did and Benjamin Franklin did. And, and their mortality in no way diminishes their accomplishments. And that should be the same case with the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs were doing great on the day that they died, but they got murdered by a space rock through no fault of their own. And so I, I think that where dinosaurs should be turned around and it should be related to amazing resilience, amazing adaptability. The dinosaurs did things that human engineers still cannot do. If you want to carry really heavy loads over rough terrains, well, consult the sauropod dinosaurs. If you want to have a self-powered flying vehicle, we, we can barely do this. The, the attempts that humans have done on a self-powered flying machine are are kind of jokes. We can fly maybe a hundred yards, but, um, you know, birds are dinosaurs and they're the champion flyers of, of earth history. Dinosaurs had an incredible, uh, mechanisms to control their body temperatures. Um, they were amazingly adaptable into every kind of terrestrial environment and amazingly resilient. It wasn't just the mass extinction at the end of the Cretaceous that they, uh, ultimately, uh, had to do it with, but it, there were lots of other uh, ecological crises along the way. So call me a dinosaur any day. I think it's a tremendous compliment. Yeah, you know, I, I think there's this old idea that might, maybe still is around these days that dinosaurs were these sort of green walking lizards with small brains and, and that were a little bit slow. Uh, but you say in your book that dinosaurs were tiny and huge. They were skittish and ferocious, fast and slow. Runners, walkers, climbers, flyers, sometimes swimmers. They were solitary and gregarious, nocturnal and diurnal. Meat eaters and plant eaters, hunters, scavengers, grazers and browsers. Drab, colorful, scaled and feathered, endemic and widespread. There were filter-feeding crocodiles and whales with legs. There were rodents the size of cows and snakes that could eat cows. There were dragonflies with the wingspan of an eagle and pillbugs the length of a car. There was a Cambrian animal that looked like a cross between a gummy worm and a box of toothpicks, a creature so bizarre <laughs> that paleontologists named it the hallucigenia. The bounty of wonders is endless, and nature never fails to surprise. So how, how do we know this? How do we know how just how rich this world was? Well, and so some of the examples that you cited uh, go back way before the dinosaurs, like that strange hallucinogenia um, and, and the latter half, they, they were not dinosaurs. But we know this because we have um, a book that contains the most amazing story in the world. And that book is called The Fossil Record. And it's contained within the pages of the rock layers that we can find all over the surface of our planet. And, you know, we only get a, a page here and there. I, I just came back from Utah, and that's, that's a great place to read the book of geology. But you'll get a, a layer from the 
Jurassic here and then maybe a little bit of Triassic under that. And so you have to travel the world to really get the plot of the whole story. Um, but we can see in the pages of Earth history uh, things that, that a novelist would never be able to imagine, things that a fiction writer would be, uh, you know, an, an editor would say, whoa, uh, tone it back a little bit, you know, dial that back uh, if, if you wrote about some of the creatures that we actually see in the fossil record. So, you know, nature is, is not only stranger than we can imagine, it's really, um, it, it, it just defies everything that um, I think that we could ever conjure in, in the realm of fiction, um, which is one of the reasons why I love it. These things are real, um, but they seem so fantastic. And so dinosaurs were amazingly varied. They were amazingly adaptive and, um, you know, far from these sluggish, brutish, you know, always green, slimy failures. They were really the, the paragons of resilience and adaptation. Yeah, you know, even with my fascination uh, with dinosaurs at age eight, there's some things that I got wrong. Um, and some of my assumptions were just a little bit uh, smaller than than what the dinosaurs actually occupied in the world. I, for example, I said that the legacy these days of dinosaurs are lizards and turtles and, and, and Gila monsters, when in fact, as you point out, actually the legacy of dinosaurs are really birds, and that when you see a penguin or a chicken, you're, you're literally seeing a dinosaur, and that there's an extent to which that a hummingbird has more in common with the, the dreadnoughtus, which you discovered, and we can talk about that in a second, than with the triceratops. So for people who might not be familiar with the idea of birds as dinosaurs, um, how does that work? How is it that di- that birds are literally, as you say in your book, dinosaurs? They are. And so the first thing I tell people is that, you know, common sense is a very poor guide to understanding the universe. And because common sense doesn't work all that well, we have science. Science is kind of the opposite of common sense. And it seems fanciful to think that a bird is a dinosaur, but that is literally true. And I'm not saying that birds are related to dinosaurs. I'm not saying that birds uh, descended, um, you know, solely from their, I'm not saying that birds descended from dinosaurs. Birds are, are literally today, they are dinosaurs. Um, and the reason is that if you, if you go back and you find the first member of any group of organisms. We, we call these groups clades, uh, C-L-A-D-E-S. Um, a clade is the ancestral organism and 100% of that organism's descendants. So mammals, that's a clade. And so we can go back and we can find in the fossil record the very first mammal. And we would say that what a mammal is, is that first species of mammal and 100% of their descendants. And nobody really argues with that. And so it's it's okay in, in, in people's uh, imagination, I think, that a blue whale is a mammal and a, and a mouse is a mammal and we are mammals and camels are mammals uh, because we all go back to that first mammalian ancestor. Well, it's the same with the dinosaurs. So if you go back about 235 million years ago in the fossil record, and we can see this in rocks in Africa, we see the first things that are anatomically dinosaurs. And if we set that as the, as the definition of what it is to be a dinosaur and take 100% of that creature's descendants, well, Stegosaurus is in that group, and Allosaurus, and T-Rex, and Dreadnoughtus, as you said, and all of the birds are as well. And birds are dinosaurs because they have the first dinosaur for an ancestor, just like a T-Rex does, just like an Allosaurus does. There's no way to arbitrarily kick them out of that group. They're in the group just as you're in the group mammal. We couldn't say that mammals are all things that have the first mammal for an ancestor, except for kangaroos, right? You can't just take a group and kick them out arbitrarily. So birds are literally dinosaurs, just like all the rest. How did they survive and not the Triceratops or the Dreadnoughtus? Why do we still have birds and not, you know, animals the size of a 737? Well, Paleontologists have found um, tens of thousands of egg nests from 
uh, I'll introduce a new term here, the, the non-avian dinosaurs. So we talk about avian dinosaurs, those are birds, and non-avian dinosaurs, those are all the rest, things that you think of as a dinosaur, like a stegosaurus. So paleontologists have found tens of thousands of non-avian dinosaur egg nests in the world, and every one of those is just a, a crater in the ground that some mama dinosaur scraped out uh, where she deposited her eggs right on the surface. And so the non-avian dinosaurs, as far as we know, all of them had 100% of their life cycle on the surface of the Earth. So when something happens like an asteroid impact that heats up the atmosphere to a tremendous degree, there's no place for that species to hide. And they all seem to have perished in that cataclysm. There's one group of dinosaurs, however, that we know for sure today has some burrowing members, and that's the birds. And so if you live in Australia, you might have penguins burrowing under your crawl space. In the Amazon, we have burrowing parrots. In the desert southwest of the U.S., there's burrowing owls. Uh, here in New Jersey, in the uh, gravel quarries uh, throughout the state, in the, in the summer, you'll see the swallows come in and they set up burrows in the cliffs where they lay their eggs. So the one group of dinosaurs that we know that has some burrowing members is the one that seems to survive this mass extinction. And I don't think that's a coincidence. And so it's almost like the, the avian dinosaurs lucked out just for, for whatever reason that they, they, they were burrowing, that, that somehow they were able to survive something that they probably couldn't have predicted, which was this asteroid. Absolutely. And you look at the other things that survive, um, our mammalian ancestors, which were little shrew-like creatures at the time, good burrowers, uh, crocodiles, are great burrowers, turtles, lizards, small things like that, good burrowers, and they survive. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, you know, that, that we are apes. There was a time in human history where people, where humans were a little bit disturbed by the ideas that they were apes. But you also say that in a certain sense, we're also fish and dinosaurs, and, and so what does that mean? What, what do we have in common? What familial link do we have to dinosaurs as humans? Well, the, the group that we're in mammals is a, is a distant cousin of the group that contains dinosaurs. That split goes way back to about 320 million years ago. So about 320 million years ago, there was a group of, we'll call them reptile-like uh, animals, uh, living in the world. And at some point, they were separated by some kind of geographic barrier. That's usually how speciation occurs. That could be a, a river or a sea that forms through plate tectonics or a canyon or a mountain range, something uh, becomes a physical separation. And that group of reptile-like animals would have then been genetically isolated from each other. They would start to go in their own evolutionary direction. And what happened is the one group uh, evolves into a group that we call the sauropsids. And they are the progenitors of uh, the reptiles. And so snakes and lizards and crocodiles and uh, dinosaurs and, and the, the avian and the non-avian dinosaurs, dinosaurs and birds, if you want to say it that way, all come from that group. The other group uh, evolves into what we would call synapsids. And so there's a lot of sort of proto-mammals that come out of that group, and then eventually mammals. So if the one side fails, there will never be crocodiles or pterosaurs or mosasaurs or dinosaurs. If the other side fails, there will never be blue whales or wombats or grizzly bears or hoary bats or you. Uh, so it's, <laughs> it's an amazing and obscure uh, turning point in Earth's history. And uh, I point out in the book, you know, it's such a such a momentous event, the cleaving of these two great branches must have been spectacular, but it really wasn't. Um, you would see these two uh, probably not very distinguished looking uh, reptile-like creatures uh, in separate areas. And the initial difference between the two groups would be very, very subtle or not, maybe even not visually apparent. And so one of the most momentous chapters in Earth history was, was probably, would have been probably pretty dull to observe if you were there. 
Yeah, I guess you get a sense of how incremental time is and and the development of of creatures on Earth is. Um, and you talk about the butterfly effect to a certain extent. I think you use hurricanes mm-hmm. as a metaphor for that. Yeah. Literally, there are little microclimates that could be affected by the, the flap of a butterfly wing. Um, actually, actually, I'll have you explain that but just because I think that's interesting. And then I have a follow-up question about the idea of predicting um, uh, extinctions and, and, and evolutions and things like that. But first, tell us why the butterfly effect might actually be a thing. Sure. Well, the butterfly effect, which I, I think a lot of people have heard of that term. Um, in science, it's known as sensitive dependence on initial conditions. And the, the butterfly effect metaphor is that, uh, say, a butterfly flapping its wings in North Africa, uh, under its wings, it creates a, a tiny little low pressure disturbance. That's, that's uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Under its wings, they create a tiny little high pressure disturbance, low pressure above. That's how they fly. Um, and it's imaginable that that little low pressure cell could uh, propagate itself into something slightly larger. And that could grow a little larger into a little low pressure wave. And eventually that could grow into uh, an actual weather system, which could grow into a tropical storm, which could grow into a hurricane that could, you know, maybe a month later, batter the coastline of the United States. Uh, you need energy added all along the way in the form of heat, which usually comes from ocean water. But this is how storms propagate. Maybe it's not from the flapping of a butterfly wing, but something causes that low, that little germ of a low pressure cell to come into being. And then if conditions are right, if there's energy added, that cell can increase and increase and increase. And eventually it does become a hurricane. And we see this in evolutionary history all over the place. And so it's that, it's that little tiny reptile-like creature that gets separated from its kin. And, and its group eventually evolves into uh, synapses and mammals. And some mammals evolve into protoprimates and then primates and then apes. And some apes evolve into hominids. And then there are lots of species of humans. And one of those dominates and they become homo sapiens and they spread out across the world and eventually start building spacecraft and, you know, going to the moon and sending space probes to the edges of our solar system. And that all happens with this tiny, tiny little flap of a butterfly wing that in this case is just the cleaving of these reptile-like animals, one from another about 320 million years ago. Well, you talk in your book, speaking of space exploration, of the NASA New Horizons probe that traveled billions of miles to the edge of the solar system and actually got to its destination within 87 seconds of when it was predicted to be there. So there's an extent to which that science is very sophisticated, but it doesn't do a very good job of predicting the future. Like we're not really sure who's going to be in the Super Bowl this season or next season. And so you bring that up, that there's an extent to which that like the avian dinosaurs had no idea that burrowing would actually make them survive millions more years than the other kinds of dinosaurs. So um, there's an extent to which that studying the fossil record, studying the deep past of the history can teach us about the future, but there's also an extent to which that we can't really predict the future. So how does having a familiarity with ancient history give us a better sense for how the future might work? Well, there are certain things that we can predict about the future, and then there are certain things that are chaotic and obscured by, by the future. We live in this tiny little slice of time um, that is the present, and you know, the present isn't very much. The, the sentence I am speaking is already in your past. And so we just live in this little knife edge that is the present, and the future is always obscured to us, right? It's always just racing just ahead of us, just out of our grasp. And so the thing about the future is that we don't have access to it. So we can't really do science on the future. The future is obscure. We can do no experiments in it. No one remembers the future. It's really always just out of reach. So where do we get our information to make predictions? Well, we get it from the past. And why would we want to limit the information that we use to make our predictions from just the near past, just the historical past? It was Winston Churchill who said, the further back you look, 
the further ahead you can see. So if you really want to understand how Earth ecosystems respond, how the biosphere and the climate and plate tectonics respond, well, you have to look at the deep Earth past. You have to look at deep time. And when you start to do that, you see that uh, there have been cataclysms in the past. We can see the kind of devastation that is wrought from different kinds of phenomena. We can see how Earth systems recover from those. And the abiding message that you get from the rock record everywhere in the world. I always say that the rocks will speak to you if you, if you learn their language. And that's what geologists have done. That's what paleontologists have done. And if you learn the language of the rocks, if you learn to read them, they will say the same thing to you wherever you go in the world. They will say, it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this particular way because there are an infinite number of futures that are ahead of us at any one moment in time. And so just change a little something here or alter a little something there, and you've altered the course of Earth's history forever. And so I think along with that, when you begin to understand our deep time history, for me, it instills an immense sense of gratitude because the, the chance of it turning out the way that it has is almost zero, but we have to have some present, right? And so there's going to be one, and this happens to be the one that we got. And it happens to be the one that includes our species. And beyond that, it happens to be the one that includes me and you and your listeners and everybody that you knew, which are all extremely improbable. So I just feel this immense gratitude for just existing and for being part of this amazing tapestry of life that has persisted on our planet for 3.8 billion years. Um, actually, in my book from 1978, I have four theories for extinction. One was that the dinosaurs, and I'm not, and I apologize for my science. I was I was seven years old. Um, <laughs> one was that the dinosaurs had small brains. That was one of my theory. My second one was that the mammals ate their eggs. Uh, the third theory is that the Rocky Mountains killed the dinosaurs. I, I don't remember exactly why, <laughs> what my thinking was. And that number four was it got cold. Um, so why do you think that I postulated that those were the extinction causes? And uh, explain how the actual answer, as we understand it now, is actually an asteroid. Well, first, I think those aren't bad hypotheses for a seven-year-old in 1978. Um, and in fact... No one knew what happened to the dinosaurs in 1978. Hmm. Um, the hypothesis that an asteroid killed them was published in 1980. Wow. Uh, so you shouldn't be, uh, you shouldn't fault yourself for having uh, ideas that were a bit off the mark there, because uh, grown-ups were publishing papers just as ridiculous. There was actually a peer-reviewed published paper that. Um, caterpillars ate all the fiber-rich plants, and all the dinosaurs died of constipation. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, there, there was a, papers about mammals eating all their eggs. A sneaky mammals did it. Um, there were papers about uh, maybe uh, sex determination in dinosaurs, like it is in crocodiles, was temperature dependent, and it got too hot to make males or too cold to make females. There were those ideas that their brain was too small, that they perished of species, senility, um, all kinds of crazy ideas. Uh, because when humans don't know something, what do we do? We make stuff up, right? <laughs> and so, uh, so people just kind of made up ideas about what happened to the dinosaurs. And actually making stuff up is kind of the first step in the scientific process. You know, where do hypotheses come from? Well, we make them up. But then we just don't stop there. We don't just make them up and say, this is how the world works. We make them up. And we test them. And usually it turns out that we can falsify our hypotheses or our colleagues do it for us. Um, and then if they stand all that testing, then we start to, to you know, put some, some weight into them. So you weren't wrong to make up uh, your own hypotheses like that. We can now falsify your hypotheses. And we know, um, I think confidently, that it was actually an asteroid that did it. Uh, now you have you're not just a person who works out of an office in New Jersey. You you've actually done a lot of field work, and you've actually you discovered. I keep mentioning the dreadnought assess because you discovered it um, more than a decade ago. Uh, and mm -hmm. so, real quick, I'm curious to know how do you find dinosaur bones? I mean, I, I, I'm 
Part of my book in 1978, I, I write about the the excitement I lived in Kansas, uh, you know, of maybe going to Western Kansas and looking for dinosaurs. How how does one in real life find dinosaur bones? Well, uh, all of us paleontologists, we all kind of use the same formula. And the first is that you have to find rocks of the right age. Dinosaurs lived only during a certain geological time period. So you have to find rocks between the late Triassic and the end of the Cretaceous, unless you're interested in the dinosaurs we call birds, and then you can go even closer to the present. So you have to have rocks of the right age. And that's not too hard now because the world is to a coarse degree geologically mapped now. Uh, those rocks have to be sedimentary rocks like sandstone or shale so that a fossil can form. You can't have a fossil form in a volcanic rock um, like, a, like, a, uh, like a basalt. And you can't uh, have a rock that forms in, I'm sorry, you can't have a fossil that forms in a, a metamorphic rock like a, like a schist or what we call a gneiss because they've been heated and squeezed and they would preserve a fossil. So you find rocks of the right age, you find rocks that are sedimentary rocks, and then you need exposure of those rocks. You need to go to a place where you can see the rocks. And so that's usually a desert or a badlands. That's why you see, you know, if you watch National Geographic or the Discovery Channel, you always see paleontologists working in deserts. It's not because the dinosaurs lived in deserts. Those environments change over time. It's because rocks today are exposed in deserts. Hmm. And then the fourth thing that I like to have is I like to try to get as far away from other paleontologists as possible. Um, you, well, if you find those first three things, you will find fossils. And if you have the fourth thing, there's a much, much better chance that the thing that you find is something new to science. And I think all of us really want to make new discoveries and push the boundaries of our field. And so that's how you find a dinosaur. And then physically to do it, you just get yourself on the ground and you walk. And the preservation conditions are, are different in each uh, geological setting. So it usually takes a few days to get what we call a, a search image uh, so that we understand what bones look like in that particular environment. And after two or three days of developing your search image, th then all of a sudden it's like having fossil radar <laughs> and you just start to see bones uh, everywhere. I mentioned last week I was on the, uh, vacation with my family in Utah. And uh, while hiking in the Jurassic there, I found a, a pretty big dinosaur. And my wife reminded me that I was on vacation. <laughs> so, so I shouldn't dig it up. And uh, so I, I GPSed it and I gave the uh, coordinates to a, uh, a national park ranger. Uh, but it's not, you know, people will ask me how many dinosaurs have you found? I have no idea because when you're in the right environment, you find bones all the time, like literally every 30 seconds. And look, they're usually fragments of bones, but bones. So in terms of fragments, I guess I've found thousands and thousands. And then, you know, decent specimens, hundreds, and then, you know, big marquee new things, you know, those are in the um, low double digits, I guess. Wow, I have never discovered a dinosaur on vacation. So congratulations, that's amazing. Um, <laughs> that's not the first time I've found one on vacation. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd imagine you, you, have, uh, you have dino vision that the rest of us don't, you know, um, that you, you have a way of seeing the landscape. And I think in your book, you talk about going out with an archaeologist, and the archaeologist was seeing things that you, that you weren't seeing. Um, you know, when I was a kid and I told people I wanted to be a paleontologist, people said, oh, well, it's, it's kind of boring. You just, you just dig all the time. So what is field work? What is field work like? Is it boring? Can you outsource tasks? Um, is it an adventure? Is it dangerous? What's, what's field work like? Uh, it's not boring. It's the best. Uh, it's, it's amazing. There's some danger. It's adventurous. Um, I never feel more like myself than when I'm in some desert somewhere in the world, breaking rocks with a pickaxe. Um, so it's very simple. In, in Patagonia, where we worked for uh, five winters, I spent a total of about a year living in my tent uh, next to Dreadnoughtus. Wow. Um, you wake up when the sun comes up, and we would have a very simple breakfast of coffee and crackers, walk about 10 miles up this dry uh, arroyo to our uh, Dreadnoughtus quarry, um, break rocks with a a pickaxe or a chisel and a crack hammer uh, for, you know, 
four or five hours and then have lunch, which every day was a can of tuna, an apple and a piece of cheese. And then you break rocks until the sun gets low. And uh, along the way, as you're exposing bones, you are covering them with burlap and plaster to protect them. And then at the end of the day, we divide up our tasks and some people go out, go out and collect firewood so we can cook dinner. Others uh, go down to the river and collect water. Um, other people are cleaning up uh, equipment or organizing things. And then we have a very simple meal and we go to bed. And, uh, and then usually it's, it's pretty cold down there and very, very windy. So um, it's hard to sleep well. The, the wind in Patagonia never really stops. So I'd wake up in the middle of the night. The tent would be flapping against my face or the drinking water inside my tent would be frozen. Um, but it's a very, very simple life in the field. You have very clear objectives. And the thing I just, I know that probably all sounds horrible to some of your listeners, but the thing I love about it is that every day I got to see things that no human has ever seen before. And I got to know things that no human has ever known before because I dug a hole in the ground with stuff I bought at the hardware store. And that's just an amazing experience. And I miss it every day that I'm not doing it. And I would, I would do that every day uh, for the rest of my life if I could. Well, on behalf of my seven-year-old self, I'm super jealous. That actually does sound awesome. Um, I'm, I'm curious about one thing. In my book, I asserted that the Brachiosaurus was the biggest dinosaur. Is the Dreadnoughtus bigger than a Brachiosaurus? Well, there's different ways to talk about bigness. And so we can talk about the longest, we can talk about the tallest, and we can talk about the heaviest. So the longest dinosaurs are the diplodocids, things like Diplodocus, which most people are familiar with. Those are uh, big plant-eating dinosaurs, long neck, long tail, quadrupedal dinosaurs. They're in a group called sauropods. Um, there's one called Mementosaurus, which is a, a diplodocid that's probably the longest, maybe about 130 feet long. The tallest ones, you weren't wrong, are the, the brachiosaurs. There's one called Giraffatitan that may hold the height record if, if they could hold their neck straight up. Not, not clear if they could, but if they could, uh, they'd be about five stories tall, which is pretty amazing. And then a group of sauropods called the titanosaurs. These are the heaviest, the most massive land animals ever. And Dreadnoughtus is one of those. Now, there are some other very, very large dinosaurs like Argentinosaurus, Patagotitan, there are a few others, but they don't contain, uh, they're not represented by both a femur and a humerus from the same individual, or sometimes they don't have any uh, limb bones at all. So we can't uh, confidently ascertain their mass. We can see that they're very, very big, and Argentinosaurus seems like it might have been the biggest one yet, but it's really only known from... Uh, a series of backbones, a little bit of hip, and a, a tibia, a lower leg bone. So there's no mass that turns that into a mass. So right now, Dreadnoughtus is the most massive dinosaur for which we can confidently calculate a weight, but there are lots of other species of very, very massive dinosaurs that are you know, probably in, in a similar type of weight range. My book says that uh, the Brachiosaurus was the biggest dinosaur. I, I, I just now learned that the biggest is a very relative term. It depends on what you're talking about when you're talking about biggest. But I'm, I'm going to give you a few facts that I assert, asserted in my book from 1978. And as short or long as you want, you can uh, confirm or deny these assertions. So <laughs> number one, the Brontosaurus had two brains, one of which was in his hips. Nope, that is not true. <laughs> okay, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what my sources were, but uh, I I know what you, you got that story. It, it's actually from um, Stegosaurus, and Stegosaurus has the the smallest brain uh, volume per body volume of of any dinosaur. Hmm. And it was thought, well, you you can't be such a big dinosaur with such a tiny brain. And then they mistook um, kind of these hollows in its hips called pleurocoels for a place where another brain might be. And they thought, well, it's like a hook and ladder truck. Somebody drives the front, somebody drives the back. It has two brains. But no dinosaur, no, no animal that I know of has ever had two brains. I, I love it. I love it. And, 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 and despite the fact that humans in geologic time haven't been here hardly at all in, in just 40 years since I wrote this book, uh, 
some facts have changed, and, and God knows where I got that information. But some of your more astute visitors may have said, "Well, what about the octopus? The octopus uh, kind of has a distributed neural system, so they do have a a, a brain in the middle, but their their limbs each kind of have a brain too." I apologize for some of my assertions here, uh, because some of them are, you know, they're they're seven year old assertions. So the Camptosaurus looked mean, but he wasn't. <laughs> Probably mean. <laughs> okay, and so was he? A, was yeah. he a plant eater, and hence a little bit temperamental? Yeah. Well, I would. Um, you know, any dinosaur that's big is probably mean. These are not your buddies. Hmm. Um, they're <laughs> they're going to hurt you if you get near them. And you know that's true in today's world, whether it's carnivore or a plant eater. And um, so I wouldn't. You know, if I could go back uh, in, in the Jurassic Park. I would not go near a dinosaur unless it was very much smaller than me, something like a velociraptor. In the movie, they're portrayed as these, you know, eight foot tall creatures. Um, a velociraptor is about the size of a turkey. It has a skull that's about six inches long. Um, you could take a velociraptor. Huh. huh. I, it feels like there's, a, there's an alternate Jurassic Park sequel um, that can be made by scientists that would have a very different story. Um, and it would be even more amazing because what we know about actual dinosaurs is more amazing than they're putting on the screen. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. I, I think th- th- these sort of narrative things make the world of the dinosaurs smaller when, in fact, it was quite big. Um, okay. a- and actually, things like a T-Rex probably had feathers. Um, so it was both deadly and fancy. And what, did, what purpose did those feathers serve? Well, again, we, we don't really talk about purpose. We talk about function. But... Um, what we can see is that feathers way back in the Jurassic first evolved in a, a tiny group of meat-eating dinosaurs. And the first kinds of feathers to evolve weren't the, the big, flat, slight feathers that you might think of, but they were more like down. And that appears to be for insulation. And so these dinosaurs are living a very vigorous lifestyle and they're covered with scales, and some scales begin to evolve into feathers. They're really the same organ. And those downy-type feathers insulating the body allow you to uh, be active while putting less calories into maintaining your, your body temperature. Hmm. Uh, then some of those feathers evolve into what we call the pinaceous feathers. Those are the, the flat kind of flight feathers that that you'd be familiar with. But we can see anatomically, this is before dinosaurs could fly. So what's the function of those feathers? Hmm. Probably for display. The flat, tenacious feathers, they form a a coherent surface off which light can reflect. And so there's two ways to get color. You can use pigments, that's chemical color, or you can use structure, uh, structural color. And so those iridescent hues that you see on the neck of a peacock or the brilliant green of a, of a hummingbird, those aren't pigments. Those are, that's the way the light plays off of the feathers. And so they can form very effective signaling devices, which could signal other species or members of your species that you're angry or that you're interested in courtship or lots of other things. And then it's only later in the, in the Jurassic period that those feathers um, seem to be on arboreal creatures, dinosaurs that live in trees and probably start out gliding and then eventually powered flight evolves. And that's when we have birds. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know if, um, what the relationship of dinosaurs was to water, because in my book I asserted that the Anatosaurus raced to the water when he saw meat eaters because meat eaters didn't like water. Was this true? Well, almost every animal can swim. And we see, um, it, you know, not every animal wants to swim, but almost every animal, if you throw it in the water, can swim. And we actually can see swim tracks of predatory dinosaurs, uh, places where either by accident or on purpose, they ended up in the water. And as they're swimming, probably, you know, doggy paddle style, you can see where they have scraped their claws on the bottom of a sandy bed or a muddy bed. Um, Probably there were some dinosaurs that were uh, semi-aquatic or amphibious. The one in particular that people speculate about in that regard is Spinosaurus from the uh, mid-Cretaceous of northern Egypt. 
And um, I worked actually for two winters in the Sahara Desert in Egypt to try to uh, recover Spinosaurus. And what I saw is that Spinosaurus was living um, far, far from the mainland, maybe uh, 30 to 50 miles away from the mainland on this very low sloping tidal flat that was dominated by islands of mangrove vegetation. So this dinosaur was living way out there uh, on the coast in these tangles of mangroves far from fresh water. And its jaw, unlike most meat eaters, it looks like a crocodile jaw. And unlike most meat eaters that have kind of like uh, steak knives, it has conical teeth, more like a crocodile. And so this thing is almost certainly a fish eater and probably had adaptations that allowed it to be very comfortable in the water. I, the Spinosaurus actually makes an appearance in my book. I assert that he had a sail on his back that stood up when he got mad. Fact or not? <laughs> uh, no, not true. Um, the sail on a Spinosaurus, if in fact it was a sail, um, is supported by six-foot neural spines that come off of the backbones, and there's no flexible joint uh, in where they attach to the vertebra. Uh, so it wouldn't have been able to, to flex that sail one way or another. I say, yes, it was a sail because there are some that contend maybe those spines didn't support a sail. Maybe they supported a hump, which kind of makes sense because a hump, a fatty hump like you see in camels today is a way of water storage. It's not just water that's in there. It's fat, but fat is mostly water. Um, and spinosaurs that are living way out on this coast, very far from a source of fresh water, maybe they evolved a way to carry water with them in the form of fat, which could explain um, the presence of a hump. I'm curious to know what dinosaurs sounded like, uh, because in movies they sort of sound like a mix between eagles and elephants. And, and in my book, I say that Teratosaurus warned his prey sometimes by screaming. I'm not sure why I said that. But is there a, do, do paleontologists know what dinosaurs sounded like? Did they have voices? Well, I'm sure they had voices. And in fact, you know, we have birds today and they have uh, uh, amazing voices. Um, dinosaurs didn't have a larynx like mammals do, like you do. They have an analogous organ called the syrinx. And for the animals that have a syrinx, and that includes crocodiles and it includes birds, what we find, say, in the case of crocodiles, is they, they can make lots of very low rumbles and, and gurgling sounds and also some squeaks and pops. And then, you know, birds can make a wide variety of sounds. So it's probably more likely that they were making those rumbly sounds with maybe some squeaks and pops uh, that might correspond to the size of the dinosaur. They weren't roaring like lions like you hear in Jurassic Park. And I don't think they were so angry either. You know, <laughs> um, in, in Jurassic Park, whenever a dinosaur is attacking, it's just enraged. And you don't really see that in animals today. When a, when a lion is hunting, you know, they're hungry and they're determined, but it's not like they're super pissed off. They just want a meal. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Um, I guess, I guess we sort of anthropomorphize things, and clearly in my book, I anthropomorphize a lot about dinosaurs. I think the reason why I liked plant eaters is because they seem nicer than meat eaters, but clearly that was not true. But one final <laughs> fact-checking detail, I noticed that I, I observed that the pterodactyls, which were flying dinosaurs, hung upside down like a bat. Is that, is that true? Well, I think you're probably wrong on two orders there. Um, okay. One is that they're, they're not dinosaurs. Oh. Um, the, the group uh, that makes up the pterosaurs, they are the cousins of the dinosaurs. Pterosaurs and dinosaurs have a common ancestor that predates the first dinosaur. They form a group called Ornithodirons. Um, so they're alive at the same time as the dinosaurs, and they're the cousins of the dinosaurs, but they are not dinosaurs. The only dinosaurs that have ever been able to fly are the birds. And um, we don't have any evidence, as far as I know, that pterosaurs uh, hung upside down. Well, Ken, I'm, I'm glad that you talked to me. I know that uh, you have to go back to, you know, vacations where you discover dinosaurs and, and other exciting parts of your job. <laughs> so, but before we leave, I'm curious to know, what can dinosaurs teach us about being human? What, what, what is it about dinosaurs that can give us perspective on how we walk through the world? Well, I think that, you know, what we can see from 
dinosaurs is that um, they they accomplished many different things in their long tenure, and I think it's it's humbling to see that for us. You know, we kind of think we're the epitome of evolution, right? In the epitome of biology. And we're not. Um, dinosaurs dominated the world for 165 million years. But that's only if you don't include the birds. And bird species are still three times as numerous as mammal species. So if you include the whole run, it's about 235 million years. Um, and dinosaurs got the jump on mammals by about 20 million years. So the whole group has existed and persisted for longer than our whole group, the mammals. And then our particular species, Homo sapiens, has only been around for about 300,000 years. And so we're just a tiny little blip uh, in, in geological time. And, you know, yet we, you know, we just arrived really on this planet in evolutionary terms and we look around and we kind of think it's all about us and it's not. And when you look at the long, long history of the dinosaurs and how adaptable and resilient they were, I think it's both humbling, but it's instructive that we have a long way to go and we need to um, become a species that is more adaptive because the, the direction that we're taking right now uh, will not lead to the results that anyone wants. Um, and the way we are degrading our planet is not sustainable in the long run, maybe not even in the not so far uh, future. And so I think we can look to not just dinosaurs, but all the fossil record, and we can look at it as a cautionary tale that things change and things can change in dramatic and cataclysmic ways, and we don't want our world to change in dramatic and cataclysmic ways, um, and that also we really have to do better as a species to adapt and to help create a, a more resilient world around us. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Kenneth Lacavara's book, Why Dinosaurs Matter, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.